last week we started talking about uh, our study as uh, we um, as we began and what we're going to do and what we're going to talk about. And uh, just a refresher, if you weren't here last week, we're going to spend uh, the next couple of months uh, working through uh, differing ideas uh, that have um, have come into Western culture and have uh, been competing for the heart, for the mind of the West. And specifically, as we talk about that, um, the reason we're talking about that in Sunday school um, is because uh, culturally, uh, we, we think, we reason, our institutions, everything that we have, has uh, initially, was initially founded on biblical principles. Now again, remember we said, not necessarily uh, that everyone doing these things were Christians, and that certainly wasn't the case, but a Judeo-Christian worldview has influenced all these things and brought these things about. And so to consider, to think through uh, the challenges to that are to think through the challenges to biblical thinking and biblical ways of life and biblical ways of organization and institution and everything else. And uh, so last week I sort of did a bit of an introduction to what I believe is uh, foundational to all of this, and that is the idea, the political, uh, the economic, the social idea of Marxism. And we talked briefly about Karl Marx and uh, who he was and what he believed. And, uh, and we're going to build on that uh, today and kind of get into the first major idea that came uh, from that. And we're going to consider uh, something today that is called critical theory. And we'll spend uh, several weeks on that. Um, and I think uh, as we get going, you'll understand more and more uh, why... Uh, I personally find concern with these ideas. Every week I'm up here, I break a pen. So there we go. Um, and, uh, and why I think that we as the church should be uh, taking these ideas very seriously. Um, why do we need to think about these things? Why do we need to talk about these things? Um, so as we go on, I, I hope that becomes very evident to all of us. So you've maybe heard of critical theory. Uh, it's... it's in non-academic terms, people often refer to it as cultural Marxism. Uh, that's uh, become somewhat of a buzzword uh, in the last couple of years. Uh, but I want to show us uh, that this is, this is more broad uh, than what it is often defined as. So this morning, more than anything, we're going to do a little bit of a historical tour. And, uh, and that's going to set the framework for where we're where we're headed, and especially what we're going to jump into uh, next week. So this is going to be one of those things where you're asking, uh, so what does this have to do with, uh, with Sunday school? And hopefully we'll uh, lay some of those bricks along the way. But trust me, in the end, we're going to get there in a big way. I keep promising that I better deliver. So, uh, but we need the background. We need the background in order to understand the ideas. And remember, <clears throat> we said last week, uh, so many ideas... Uh, people have are because they they saw a meme on Facebook or they spent uh, they spent ten minutes reading an article that someone wrote on their blog and so all of a sudden they're a, a subject matter expert and uh, and and so much conflict comes as a result of people talking about things they pretend they know a lot about and they know nothing about um, it's like every time the Supreme Court comes out with some m major uh, decision everyone becomes uh, legal experts. 
uh, and everyone knows exactly why things should be a certain way. Well, um, these issues we're talking about are very much the same. They are often very debated. Uh, a lot of things are thrown around, terms are used, and people just don't understand what they are. So hopefully we're not those people. We can move beyond that and, and talk from, uh, not from ignorance, but from uh, knowing what is reality. So you can just pretend like you just turned the channel to the History Channel now. We're going to get some background, and that's going to help us as we, as we push forward. So uh, we talked last week about uh, Marxism never really succeeding in any real way. And today even you'll hear people who are uh, very um, committed to the ideas of Marxism, to communism, and they'll say, well, it's never really been tried. You hear that all the time. It's never actually been tried. And I would argue that um, it's been tried, it's just always failed. And uh, the piles of uh, dead bodies of the 20th century have proven that. Um, and we'll, we'll talk more about what that has looked like. So, um, so since things really collapsed at the end of World War I in terms of this idea, there were still those who wanted Marxist uh, theory and, uh, and practice uh, to continue. And so there was this, still this call for a revolution. Remember we talked last week that this was the idea, that this was all going to come through a revolution of those who were of the oppressed class. And what was the word that we use? What's the word that Marx used to explain the oppressed class? What was the name he gave them? Right, the proletariat. Uh, they were going to rise up and they were going to have a revolution. But that wasn't happening. And so the idea behind what was going to be the impetus for revolution needed to change, and so we had the rise of uh, a group that were eventually called the neo-Marxists, or the new Marxists. And it, and it was taking Marx's ideas and using them in uh, different ways. And all of that rose up in the interwar period between World War I and World War II. So there were... Um, a f there's a lot of names. I'm not going to bother you with all of the names of people. I'll mention them along the way. Uh, we're not going to really spend much time talking about the individuals themselves. If you're interested, I have plenty of information on each of them. Some of the names you may have heard or be familiar with. Um, but there were two, uh, two neo-Marxists uh, that sort of got things, uh, got the ball rolling uh, Lukacs and Gramsci are these two men, uh, one Hungarian, one Italian, both philosophers. And their major premise was that Westerners were oppressed and they didn't know it. And so they wanted to understand the makeup of the cultural structure of the West that they believed prevented people from seeing that they were under the significant weight of oppression. And so they would look at all of us, every one of us, and say, you are all under the weight of oppression and you don't even know it, and it's because the cultural structure around you has convinced you otherwise. That's what they believed. So what do you think that they thought, and now remember, think time period, World War I, World War II, what do you think they would have thought was oppressive? in such a way that we didn't even know it. What do you think some of those ideas were? Okay, good. We will definitely get into that. Josh said marriage. The idea of family in general, the, the norms of family, that's going to be a big issue that we deal with. 
Good. What else? Yes, organized religion. Uh, the church in general, uh, and very specifically anything, uh, surprise, surprise, related to the Christian faith. Good. Yes, free enterprise, uh, capitalism, um, free markets, these kinds of things. That was always, if you hear Marx, you know that's always the enemy, is capitalistic uh, kinds of thinking, private property, all those sorts of things. Good. These were certainly the ideas. There's many more, and we'll get into those, uh, but um, those are some very major ideas. And they were opposed to those, um, and they saw that playing out in academia, in the media, all forms of entertainment, everything else. And so, <clears throat> they started something called the Institute for Social Fashion. It's the Institute for Social Research, uh, which... Um, you may hear referred to as the Frankfurt School. Um, and Frankfurt being in Germany, you know this all started in uh, Germany. And it was founded at the University of Frankfurt and became the home to uh, this, this school, which uh, even today has a very major influence. And you'll see how very quickly that came into America. Um, all of the men who taught there were these neo-Marxists with these ideas. And uh, some of the names, again, you'll be familiar with. Uh, Max Horkheimer, Theodore Adorno, uh, Walter Benjamin, uh, Jürgen Habermas, Herbert Marcuse. And maybe you've heard some of those names. Maybe you haven't. That's fine. I don't expect anyone to have uh, read this uh, very riveting uh, tale. Um, but uh, hopefully I can make it more exciting than the literature itself. Um, so, in, uh, in the 1920s, this began in Germany, and it was a personal allegiance to Marxist ideology and methodology. And they had this idea that through this institution, they were going to think about these major questions of these oppressive structures within the West that are holding people in a place where they don't even understand uh, that they are oppressed. And they became very productive in their work. Um, through the years, a lot of changes came about. Um, the uh, political climate was changing, obviously, in Germany during this time between World War I and World War II. Um, and yet, these guys were continuing with this Marxist inspiration and this is what, uh, as, as they were thinking through it, one of the things that they said was their main goal was toward an interdisciplinary integration of all of the social sciences. So, in other words, anything that you would study in school that's not uh, one of the STEM fields, so uh, science, technology, um, <clears throat> what am I missing? Engineering, yes, sorry, and math. Um, that anything outside of that, that would be humanities, sociology, psychology, all of those things were fair game for them. And uh, if you know the state of the humanities and the institutions today, you understand that maybe the influence was pretty, pretty strong. Um, so they wanted to think about all of these things, and um, it was an undertaking of saying, well, let's, uh, let's, ask, let's question everything. If there is a traditional idea, if there's an idea that's, uh, that's endured through the years, if it's something that's based on ancient ideas, uh, we need to question all of that. 
And what often happens when you start down a road of saying, well, um, it's just healthy to consider whether or not these ideas really should continue to endure, is that uh, everyone, becomes, um, everyone becomes a revolutionary, and everything changes. And, uh, and we're going to see how that took place. So uh, by the 1930s, remember we're in Frankfurt, Germany, all of the leading um, professors, uh, proponents of the Frankfurt School were all Jewish men. So being Jews uh, in Germany in 1930 um, wasn't the safest environment. Um, they, they needed uh, to change. And uh, the Frankfurt School was immediately shut down by the Nazis and it was uh, temporarily moved to Geneva, but then in 1935, and this is uh, an important part in the history, it moved to the United States and found its new home at Columbia University in New York. And <clears throat> then right there, if this was a movie, you could cue the very scary music. Because now we have these ideas of challenging and questioning everything that has made the West what the West is, have entered into the United States in a big way. Now, interestingly, throughout Nazi, Nazi rule in Germany, the Institute was the only platform for any kind of free German uh, publications. That didn't, it was the only place where anything was coming out in German that wasn't filtered through the Nazi regime. regime. So um, they really had an opportunity to influence a lot of people, and they certainly uh, took that. Um, but uh, they... Uh, they began to address economic, social, political, aesthetic topics, all kinds of entertainment, media, all these things within this Marxist framework. They weren't interested in integrating into American culture. That wasn't something they wanted to do. They wanted to remain thoroughly German. They wanted to remain thoroughly opposed to Western cultural identity. And in fact, some of them were very concerned that uh, it's, it's hilarious to me. They knew how good life was in America compared to the rest of the world, and they were afraid that if they got there, they would like it too much, and so they did everything they could to make sure they remained non-American as much as possible. They yes, they... Exactly, exactly. Yes, they had the ability to do what they did because of the culture that they despised. Indeed. Interesting. <laughs> so they published a lot. They were writing a lot. Um, they weren't engaging in the cultural uh, norms of the day, and so they had plenty of time to do that. Um, by 1941, Horkheimer moved to California. Again, even scarier music. <laughs> and he began teaching at Grandeis University, and so you have two major cities, uh, two major um, states on opposite coasts, and the same things going on in both of these places. Both institutions very influential. Um, and a few others followed on from uh, New York. And so the institute remained viable. It began to attract students, and they were going um, even from the middle of the country out to uh, the coasts. Now, interestingly... You ever, you ever think about why are, why are the most, uh, why are the most diverse and in most places and most times the most liberal ideas on the coasts? Why do you think that is? It's all the air they're getting. <laughs> What's that? They don't have a farm. <laughs> 
Yeah, immigration, Lee. Right, so you have, you have the most diverse group, grouping of people, usually on the coast, especially early on, because that's where all the ports of entry were, right? So these are places where ideas are coming from all over, and you don't have, um, you don't have a people who are sort of um, isolated from other ideas. And so in a lot of ways, that can be a very good thing, right? We should celebrate that and be thankful for that. We, we don't want to be locked into things without ever being challenged to think about those and whether or not they're true or anything else. Um, and if that were the case, if we really thought we wanted that um, and that was a good thing, then we wouldn't evangelize. We did, wouldn't do missions. None of that would even matter. Uh, we would just say, let's, uh, let's isolate ourselves. Let's, let's do the village like M. Night Shyamalan and pretend like nobody else exists. And if you go outside the trees, you're going to meet the bad spooky monsters. So stay here. Right? We need to be exposed to different ideas. But that's the reason why um, all throughout history, this isn't Western culture, this is uh, from the very beginning, even Plato deals with this in the Republic, uh, ideas were always down. Uh, he, when he wanted to debate, he would go down by the water. Why? Because that's where all the different people came in from all the different places. And so, um, anyway, we see this idea of critical theory of the Frankfurt School, California and New York. The two places all of you really want to live, I know. So what is critical theory? We'll think about that more as an idea now. Uh, first, I want to take a bit of a detour and think about a guy by the name of Jean-Jacques Rousseau. And some of you have probably heard his name before. Um, <clears throat> one of Rousseau's most famous quotes is this. Man is born free, and everywhere he is in chains. What does that mean? What do you think he means by that? Man is born free, but everywhere he is in chains. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Wait, maybe exactly the opposite, right? <laughs> yeah. Good. So I'm born as a, as a free, individual, independent person, and yet everywhere I go, someone's trying to hold me down, right? It's the man holding me down, right? Um, Exactly. So, what Rousseau believed was that man, uncorrupted by his environment, was inherently good. What do you think about that? That man, um, uncorrupted by his environment, if you were just born in a bubble, essentially, um, that you were inherently good. What's that? The opposite of what the Bible says, absolutely. What else? Someone said something. Well, actually, Rousseau did have children and was one of the worst fathers you could ever imagine. He, he, um, he would lock his children away. Uh, because of this ideology, he would lock his children in the closet sometimes and all that sort of thing. He was a terrible, terrible father. Um, so he did have kids, but I think he was trying to uh, work their real nature out of them, right? Sure, exactly, and that's, that's one of the things I wanted us to key in on, <clears throat> that 
as though, as, as we look at this as Christians, we, we obviously understand right away. We all kind of smile and, and laugh about the idea that he could even possibly think such a thing. And yet, that is the predominant idea in our culture, isn't it? That uncorrupted by his environment, man is inherently good. Right? You hear that all the time. That people are, do evil things, say evil things, believe evil things because they've been influenced by others. And so where, if you think like that, where does all of the blame shift to in terms of evil and sin? Others. It's someone else. It's something else. It's never me, right? Right. It's the man that's not inherently good. That's right. It's the institution. It's the, it's the uh, whatever. You name whatever that institution is, the big scary boogeyman that it's going to be, um, and, and that's the problem. It's never looking at oneself and saying that, in fact, I am the problem here. Right. Right, exactly. It's, it's way up there. I can do nothing about it. It has so much power. It's holding me down. Well, what is that? Well, it's government. Okay. I might agree with that. But... <laughs> We're like two weeks into a shutdown. It's fantastic. Um, what, what, what about? What about government? What is going on there? How is that? Well, uh, it's this or it's that. It's these things. Okay, well, what, what is your contribution? How does that function? How do you work that out in your own life? Uh, well, it's there. It's there. Just trust me, it's there. And that's kind of the conversation, right? Well, what is there? Um, never wanting to come back and ever address the issues of the heart. Why? Because, and I hear this often from people, um, man, I think, is generally good. And most people are good people that want to do the right thing. Um, It's just that, uh, you know, there's a few bad apples in the bunch. But by and large, we all get along because uh, people are good. That's the common mindset, right? Is exactly the opposite, as David said, of what the Bible teaches. And no one's good, no, not one, not even one. And uh, the description that uh, the Bible gives us with regard to how man truly is in his nature is, uh, is, is quite grotesque, isn't it? Uh, the things that come out of his heart are like an open grave. Um, if you think of that, what that is, the picture that's being depicted there. Um, the Bible says our best intentions are like filthy, soiled, um, uh, feminine hygiene products is the uh, reference that's being used there. It's uh, just a grotesque idea. Um, and these are the ways the Bible talks about the human heart. And so when you consider something like this mindset, that man is inherently good and he's only corrupted by his environment, we have some major problems. Yes? Right. The woman that you gave me, she she's the problem. Right. Right. Or whatever it is, the church, the school, whatever. That's the problem. Yeah, that's exactly what Adam said. Uh, what are you doing? Well, that woman that you gave me, uh, she pulled from the tree, and you gave her to me. So it's her fault. It is your fault. I'm a victim here, right? <laughs> why, why are all of you arrayed against me? 
Because inherently, and, and truly, the only, only man that we could ever say could have said this was true of himself uh, was Adam, right? Exactly, exactly. So we have right up front with this idea, this Rousseauian idea, a problem. And that is the fundamental problem of man's nature. And so Rousseau argued that he actually believed that he proved, he proved that man is naturally good. A very bold claim. However, people would ask Rousseau, as anyone who had two brain cells to rub together would ask, well, if that's true, Rousseau, then why does evil exist in the world? Why do people do evil things? And so he said, as you might expect, well, it's all as a result of the change of people's conditions. It is all of these advances we're making in society, and it's a knowledge that people have that they're able to acquire things. In other words, growing older, achieving more, and getting smarter. Those are the problems. If we just remain as we are when we're born, then we won't have a problem. But because we don't, we end up doing evil things because we introduce competition into the game. And when competition is introduced, our good nature is corrupted and we do all kinds of mischief. Can you imagine watching a basketball game with that guy? Like, not wanting any competition? What kind of dolt are you? Like, how boring would that be? Play Monopoly with that guy. He'd want to make up rules as you go along. You can always borrow from the bank and no one ever loses. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> right, so if, if this is now the idea, man's good, but competition is introduced, and therefore evil exists, uh, what do you think the... Uh, he's just a philosopher, so he doesn't have to give answers. <laughs> but if someone takes that idea and wants to give answer to that... What do you think would be the answer to how to solve, uh, to remedy this problem? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Now, you know, we, let's, let's just not keep score. Right? That's bad for self-esteem. So let's not keep score a across the board, whether that's, socioeconomic, whether that's in a child's game, whether that's uh, grades in school, let's not keep track of progress in that way. It promotes competition, and competition promotes evil. Yeah, Lee. Yeah, we'll keep going until everyone comes to the equal outcome, right? Yeah, so all these ideas, you, got, you start to think about, okay, these philosophical musings, well, we think about them and think, well, that's just some guy sitting in a high tower writing books and is too smart for his own good. Um, we realize these things have detrimental consequences. Why do we study the ideas of, of people like Jean-Jacques Rousseau? Not because we agree with him, but because his ideas have been so influential. We need to think about that. And so Rousseau believed that we needed a social contract based on the collectively established general will of the people. And what he meant by that was that 
What needs to happen in a society then is everyone just gets together and agrees on a few social norms, and that's what we hold to. And if we do that, then we're not going to introduce this competitive nature for wanting our ideas over someone else's. And so you don't have sort of this, um, you don't have parties struggling for uh, their uh, desired ends. You don't have uh, sort of the, the political back and forth that goes on. Uh, everyone's just going to come together and we're all just going to agree on something. And then we'll live by that. Right, yeah, there's a solution being proposed, right. So, but knowing what we know as Christians about human nature, what do you think about the idea of a, uh, of a social contract of the collectively established general will of the people? Is that possible? Right. 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 So now we have, if if we understand human nature, everyone, uh, on some level, is looking out for their personal interests. So to try and get individuals together to agree, and let alone an entire community, uh, we're going to struggle to find common ground. Yes. Good. Yeah, Russ said a norm requires an objective standard, but if you don't have an objective standard, then it's always going to change. It's arbitrary. It's based on the, the ideas and whims of people each and every day, right? Um, yeah, go ahead. Right. Right. Good. That's a great thought, Rob. That uh, I've, I've tried to think of conflict as an opportunity, right? Conflict is an opportunity to get better, to think harder, to uh, hone ideas or whatever we're doing. It's an opportunity to make progress. And, uh, and so often we think of conflict as a negative thing only. And it's not. If we don't have conflict, we, don't have, we have no reason to progress um, as... Uh, I would say that um, much of conflict that takes place in a church, as, as people disagree over things or, or ways of doing things or ways of thinking about things, um, that that exists uh, by the Lord's design to help us to continue to think harder and more clearly about the Bible. Why did God ordain that uh, there should be heretics you ever thought about that? Was it good that Arius existed one day and Arianism came out of that? Was that a good thing for the church? I think it was. Why? Right. Right. It forced the church to sit down and think about what do we believe about this and then drafting uh, from there uh, the great creeds and confessions of the faith that we can now look at and say, well, this is what we believe about the Trinity. Not just because someone said God is Trinity, but now we're forced to study the Scriptures very clearly and to argue from the Bible as to why that is. We should think about all ideas along those lines. That conflict is an opportunity now. These ideas are opportunities that we have to think more clearly about these things. And if we think they're wrong, fine, we can think they're wrong, but we need to be able to say why. Yeah, Josh. 
Great. Yeah, moving toward the conflict in order to be sharpened by it. Yeah. Right. Right, and, and it comes back where Russ was saying earlier is that we have to think in light of anything that we can deal with in terms of conflict, what is the objective standard here? And for us as Christians, I hope immediately our thought always is, well, what does the Bible have to say about this? Does it speak to these issues? Um, obviously, what we've been talking about in man's nature, uh, by and large, uh, does the Bible speak to the issue of man's nature? Yes, from start to finish. Uh, at, if, if you don't know anything else about the Bible, what you do know at least is that I think I can safely say every one of the stories in the Bible tells us something about the nature of mankind. And so that's always a very prominent issue and, uh, and the conflict that we deal with in, in our own situations. We need to go back to the source and say, what does the Bible teach me about this and how I handle this? How do I handle dealing with heretical ideas or ideas of theology or the church that differ from mine or uh, ideas of a policy? Uh, does the Bible speak to those? All of these need to come back to this objective source. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. Absolutely. Amen. Yes. Yeah. Amen. Let me. Great thought, Dan. We're out of time. I want to say this: that 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 nail that nails why we're doing what we're doing in this class is because so often we talk about things sort of here on the surface in the moment. We never get to the foundational principles of why this is the way it is. Why do you think that way? We never want to ask someone that question. Why do you think that way? We just say, you think that way, and you're wrong, and here's all the reasons why. Um, so there's something below the surface, always, behind every idea we have. What is that idea? And those are the ideas I'm trying to help us see so that we can think about them from a more uh, reasonable place. Any one of them. Exactly. Amen. Good word. All right, let's end. Let's pray. Father, thanks again for our time. I'm grateful for our discussion this morning. And I pray, Lord, that this will be profitable to us, that even after our, our, our short time together today, that as we hear things, as we see things, as we, uh, as we interact with people in the week ahead, uh, that we would start to think about that very question. Why do they think the way they do? Why are they saying the things they're saying? Why are they doing the things they're doing? And, uh, and Lord, help us to uh, begin to think from that perspective, uh, to not get wrapped up in, in the issue of the day, uh, but to think more clearly and more foundationally, and ultimately bringing our thoughts to be held captive by the Word of God and to see that the only solution for life and godliness is to know, to trust, to believe, and to follow the Lord Jesus Christ by the power of the gospel. And we pray now that you would be with us as we gather for corporate worship, that you would meet with us in power, in wisdom, and in truth. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.